The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'd open your Bibles to second chapter of Second Thessalonians, and today in our study of Paul's letter, we're continuing to examine the end times and the appearance of the wickedest person in the history of man. Now, in world history, there have been some really, really bad characters, some very, very bad men who have committed terrible atrocities against other people. Some of the worst that's been done has been in the name of religion. Those of you that have studied church history, you know there was a long period of inquisition that was uh, imposed on people by the Roman Catholic Church in which during that time there were as many as 50 million Baptist people and other Christians that were killed for preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we realized that we're only just uh, less than a century removed from the genocidal acts of Hitler against the Jewish people. We know about what Stalin did to his own people. And at this very hour, there's persecution of Christians in China and in North Korea and other places where the gospel is hated. And at the heads of these governments are are men who care nothing at all about human life, but what they want to do is to preserve their power. They are power mongers. They want control over the bodies and the souls of their people. They control their bodies by taking away their freedoms, and they control their souls by preventing the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. Now, as Americans, we hear about all of these things that are going on in the world, and we're simply appalled at horrible acts against people. We have indignation against those who commit such things. We demand that people ought to have their rights. And we do that while failing to admit that our government and our leaders and, in fact, many of our people, we, the people, demand the right of any person to kill a baby, a mother to kill a baby who are the most innocent among us. This tells us that the human heart is capable of intense wickedness. People don't even consider abortion to be a wicked thing to do. It's it's just something that you do. It's just a right that you have. And so we see people live out the worst of the depravity of the human heart through unspeakable acts. But the truth is, as bad as it is, and after all that we've seen and read in the history of man, and we see in our newspapers every day, we are yet to see the worst that a person can do. We've yet to see how far down next to hell and how far away from God that people can go. We haven't seen that yet. But the Bible says that there is a man who will come and he will be the worst. He'll be the most powerful man on this earth and his power won't be over one nation or a few nations. His power will be consolidated into a world confederation of nations that unconditionally turn over the reins of national sovereignty to this man. And this is the man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. He's the world's last ruler. This is man's last earthly kingdom in which religion and government are consolidated into a devastating empire 
And so wicked is this person that the Bible has another name for him. In the book of Revelation, he is called the beast. And though he is called the beast, he certainly isn't recognized that way when he comes on the scene. When he comes, he arrives with a bewitching personality. He appears to be an economic savior in times like these, an economic panic like we have right now. Here will come a man who says, I have the answer to all of these things. I can build your economy again. The world's looking for someone to deliver them from the chaotic mess that's created by human wickedness. But in this case, more importantly, to help the world out of God's wrath poured out on that wickedness. And so he comes with promises that he can solve problems. He comes in peace. He comes with hope and with answers. He comes with great political savvy. And then he also comes with hypocritical religious compassion. In fact, he does for the Jews what no one has ever been able to do in all the centuries uh, since Christ was here, since the Jewish nation has arisen, he seems to be able to do what no one else can do, and that is to forge political and religious compromises that enable the Jews to build a temple again on the Temple Mount. Now, if you go to Israel today, just the thought of that, uh, just mentioning that perhaps in, in public, is almost an act of war. The Muslims control that holy site right now. Jews have to have special permission to go up on the Temple Mount. But this this man, when he comes, will restore the right of the Jews to rebuild the Temple and to resume their sacrifices. But really, the Bible says he has he is an abomination. He he stands against God. He's on no one's side really. And in a very brief time, he reveals his true heart that he is a raging monster, that he's not interested in truth. He's only interested in his power, and he will seek power and gain power at the expense of everyone who joins him. Now, in our text of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul describes him. So if you'll look in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Then down in verses 8 and 9, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. These are descriptions of the Antichrist. Now, Paul doesn't give us very much detail in this, in this passage, but he, but he does say this much. He says that he is the son of perdition. It's a man who fits the description given to only one other person in all of the scriptures, and that is Judas Iscariot. He is the man of sin. His life, his being is characterized by sin. He opposes God. He exalts himself above God. And at the height of his power and his kingdom, he'll go in to this new temple that he allowed the Jews to build and he will take it over. He will sit in it and enthrone himself as if he is God. And then further, he's enabled by Satan to do certain types of miracles, to show signs and demonstrate inexplicable wonders. People will be enthralled by his power. They, they believe that he can do anything for them. 
But what they don't understand, that the power he has is a power that comes from Satan, and so that everything that he does is against them. Now, he looks good. He, he satisfies at first. But this is a leader who will take people who follow him straight down to the fires of hell. Now, as we get back into this text again today, the apostle is writing to the church at Thessalonica. He wrote 2,000 years ago. And what he described, what, what's going on here, is not soon upon them. In fact, in the 2,000 years that have passed, we're yet to see this wicked man come upon the earth. Well, the question is then, why is the apostle, why is the apostle Paul so concerned about this? It seems so far off. It hasn't happened yet. 2,000 years later, it hasn't happened yet. They weren't in immediate danger of it happening, it appears. And the clue to this is in verse number two. Satan tries to ruin the assurance of God's people. He's always working at that. He's always trying to ruin, to ruin uh, God's people's implicit trust in him. He wants to convince people that God is a liar, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't protect his people as he promised. And I'm sure you're going to meet people during this time. Where is God? Where is God? How could a God do this to us? How could there be a God? How can you believe in a God that would do these kinds of things to us? And you can just mark that down. Satan is whispering in the ear. Well, of course, though, God never lies. God does protect his people. The apostle wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He never lied. He never changed his mind about truths that the Spirit told him. But verse number 2 says, though, that there was another spirit. And there was another word. There was a letter that was contrary to Paul's teachings to the church. Now, these, this other spirit was false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And they were influenced by demons. The word here refers to sermons and expositions of scripture and interpretations that are meant to confuse what Paul taught. But then this thing about a letter, I mean, the letter, that's probably the most damaging tactic that Satan used to tear down the assurance of these people. It appears that someone had forged a letter, and someone said, Paul wrote this letter, they signed his name to it, and the letter said, the wrath of God's tribulation is here. And if that was true, that would directly contradict what Paul told him. He promised and we saw it in First Thessalonians. He promised, you will not go through the tribulation. He said, the church will be delivered before God pours out wrath on this world. So yes, Paul was very concerned about the hope of these Christians, that the hope that could have been very easily destroyed. These are people living in constant persecution. And so they mistook the end times persecution, thinking that, thinking that they were in the middle of it. And if they were, then that meant that neither God nor Paul told the truth. And if you can't trust God, if you can't trust the apostle, who can you trust? So Paul addressed these lies and he said, you don't need to be deceived. And then he proceeded to tell them more about the end times. That the tribulation is characterized by different events than what they'd experienced. Oh yes, there is persecution for Christian people even now. There was persecution then, but not, not of the intensity that will come in the day of the Lord. And so in these verses, Paul gave four arguments to prove to the church that they weren't living in the end times tribulation. So he returns to this subject of the end times once again. He talked about that in 1 Thessalonians. And again, he approaches this to prove that they're not living in God's day of wrath. They don't need to be concerned that they will go through it. 
And so he defined the end times by four very important characteristics. Now the first one we discussed a couple of weeks ago in the message. Number one was the tribulation is accompanied by worldwide rebellion. In verse number three, he says the end times, in the end times, there will be worldwide rebellion against God. He said there will come a great falling away from true religion. And it sounds, it's very reasonable because we look in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and uh, we find there the overarching reason for this worldwide apostasy and that's because the church has been raptured. Church is gone from the world. The worldwide missionary endeavors of the church will cease in that time. Now, across the world today, there are thousands of missionaries. The Bible is translated into hundreds of languages. The gospel is preached. Many people are saved. And it's the church that sends out these missionaries. It's the church that's always the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without the church, the truth doesn't stand. Without the church, missionaries aren't sent. Without the church, the gospel isn't preached. And while it is true that there will be some witnesses in the tribulation and some will be saved, it's not enough to stem this tidal wave of apostasy, of unbelief, of false gospels that are propagated in worldwide rejection of the one true living God. Well, certainly the Thessalonians hadn't experienced that. In fact, when Paul wrote this letter, he was at another church. There he was preaching the gospel and he was establishing more churches and the Roman Empire was being turned to Christ. Now you know the history of that, that Christianity spread like wildfire in a drought-stricken California hills. The world's not seen times like that when Christians were eager to spread the good news as they were in the first century. Thousands were being saved and Churches were popping up all across the known world. So no, they weren't living in the retreat of end times apostasy. They were living in the time of the expansion of the church. They were living in the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we talked about that last time. Then we started on this, the second reason. And this is the point of my message today. The second reason, the tribulation is accompanied by the revelation of the Antichrist. Now in verse 3, Paul said, in the day of the Lord, the man, the man of sin will be revealed. The son of perdition will come on the scene. He's not here now, he will come then. And they might be confused about that because they were living in the Roman Empire. The emperor, all of these emperors were very evil men. They had much power, but they had no power like the Antichrist will have. Now, we've slowed down here to discuss this, and we're not going to attempt even to get to reasons three and four today, and whenever we get to come back to church again, we'll talk about those. But I want to talk uh, now about the Antichrist and what he'll be like. The Bible describes him in other places, and we're looking at other places to see what kind of man he will be. And if you didn't hear the introduction to this part uh, in the last sermon, I encourage you to go back to that previous message. And um, I'm not sure if the video is up on it yet, but the, the uh, MP3 is there, and you can, you can click on that, and you can listen to it if you'd like. Uh, that was the introduction, and I don't have time to repeat all that information. But what we did was we went to the book of Daniel, and we investigated what Daniel had to say, and we could see that the coming of this man was predicted hundreds of years before Paul spoke of him in this text. 
And there are many Old Testament prophecies that concern him. But Daniel is the prophet that gives the most explicit information. In fact, Jesus repeated the prophecy of Daniel in his teachings. Specifically in Matthew 24, Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. And he's referencing this man. So Jesus referenced the same as what Paul says in verse number 4. That the man of sin... The abomination of desolation, that's another name for him, that he will sit in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. He says, I am God. And so he claims to be the God who has power over heaven and earth. And he is so convincing of this that he will convince the Jews that he is their Messiah. Well, this is a testimony of the power of Satan. How Satan can blind the minds of people to the gospel of Christ. And I really do need to mention this because there are people who believe that a person by his will, just by his will, just by deciding that he will change his mind about Christ, that he will come and he will believe in Jesus Christ and it doesn't take any power higher than him, than himself, to believe in Jesus. Doesn't the power of Satan through the Antichrist disprove this? Don't the scriptures say that Satan blinds people to the gospel of Christ so they will not believe? Don't they say that Satan is the God of this world and people blindly follow the God of this world? And don't they say that the power of Satan is a power that lost people can't resist? They're only deluded people. These are deluded people that believe they can overcome their unbelief and the power of Satan. No, you can't. Only God can do that. God has to work in the heart. He has to bring a person to belief in the Savior. If not, they will always and forever follow Antichrist. And they will follow him into the pit of hell. Only God can stop the plunge of a person into hell. So be thankful that Almighty God unfailingly draws his people to Christ. Or else they would never believe. Well, the Antichrist will have highly deceptive powers. Why? Because Satan enters him. He's the son of perdition. That's what Satan did with Judas. He entered Judas. Now that's, that's true, but I want you to recognize that this man is not the same as Satan. He's not a fallen angel. He's not supernatural. This is a man that's used as Satan's tool. He resembles Satan, but he's not Satan. Now some people believe that Satan is so skilled at imitation that the Antichrist is Satan's attempt at incarnation. Christ was the incarnate Son of God, and so Satan attempts his own incarnation. Now, of course, he can't reproduce that, but he can fake it. And the Antichrist is his fake. Satan is a created being. You know, some people believe that Satan and God are on equal terms. It's, it's either God or Satan, both of them are gods. Well, no, Satan is a created being. He's nothing like God. An incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus can't compare to Satan's fake. Christ was God in the flesh. I don't think that we can say that this is Satan in the flesh. This is a false incarnation. Satan is this wannabe who wants to fool people. His incarnation is fake. And yet the Antichrist will have every immoral characteristic of Satan. There are many questions about the Antichrist. Who is he? Is he somebody that lived before and then went to hell and came back. Some think so. And that fuels speculation that the Antichrist is Judas resurrected. 
I don't believe that this is Judas who's come back to life. I don't believe this is Hitler as some people think. I don't think he is any previously living man. I'll tell you why. Because the scriptures don't support that anyone could die and go to hell and come back. Satan does not have the power to raise anyone from the dead. And certainly Satan does not control hell. Hell is as much God's domain as heaven is. God is not going to release anyone from hell. He has no interest in doing that. Hell is separation from God, eternal separation. So he has no interest in letting people out. But interestingly though, though he's not a man that is resurrected from the dead, comes back from the past, yet he is related to people in the past. He has a family tree. He has an ancestry that's connected to the past as all people do. Only this man in a much different way. Now let me show you this by first going into the future. Then we're going to look back into the past. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. If we had time today to connect all the dots about the Antichrist, I I would spend time with you explaining this entire 13th chapter. This is a revelation of the future. I don't have time to do that, but just to show you a small part because this study does need to move on. And I want you to notice... Uh, We look here at the first eight verses and see parallels to things that we've already discussed. John begins, Revelation 13, verse number 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now remember we talked about this, that heads, heads and horns, that refers to kingdoms and power. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The dragon spoken of is Satan. You can find the identity of Satan and uh, of this dragon in chapter 12. He is the one who gives the Antichrist his power and authority. Verse number 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now this is the worldwide apostasy that was spoken of in our text, as people forget about Jehovah God, and they hastily run towards the Antichrist to worship him. He has been the political and economic savior in the turmoil of end times. Verse 5 says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. The Antichrist is brazened with the world following him. His head swells till he believes himself to be God. He's not afraid to blaspheme God. But notice... He only has three and a half years in the tribulation to do his worst. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. That is the unified power of the Antichrist. In the tribulation, he will persecute those who believe in Christ. As I said earlier, some will be saved in the tribulation. That comes through the witness of the Jewish people. Uh, So he will persecute, especially Israel, and then eventually he'll overcome them. 
He has power over all people on the earth. Now notice though, the, those who worship him, it's all of one class. It's all of one class that will worship him, but none of the other. In verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, except for who? Those whose names, or the, these that are worshipped the Antichrist, the ones who don't have their names written in the book of life. That tells us the ones who have their names written in the book of life will not worship the Antichrist. So all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Some will never follow the Antichrist. These are God's people, those that he chose before the foundation of the world. Now, if you go back to verse number 2 in Revelation 13, let me show you how this man of the future is connected to the past. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. There we have our hint of the Antichrist family history. John saw a beast that was like a leopard. It had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. Where do we read about those things in the past? Where, where do we find this? Well, guess what? We've got to go back to good old Daniel, who is the most precise prophet of the Antichrist in the end times. Now, keep your finger there in Revelation 13. We will come back. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Now, this is our study time, and you've got a couple of weeks before we, at least, before we get to get back into this again, so we may be a little bit long this morning. Uh, let's study for just a little bit. Let's compare Scripture with Scripture. In Daniel chapter 7 is recorded one of Daniel's dreams. Daniel was a man of dreams. He was an interpreter of dreams. He made his mark in Babylon as an accurate forecaster of others' dreams, but Daniel had his own dreams, and that's one of the ways that God revealed the future to him. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse number 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh." After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." That's very confusing, isn't it? If you had a dream like this, well, that's worse than dreaming about your mother-in-law. So what's he, what's he dreaming about here? Well, let's try to pick the dream apart. The four beasts that rise out of the sea are emblematic of four great empires. The lion represents Babylon. 
Daniel was then living in the Babylonian Empire and I'm sure that he could look out its window and he could see the public buildings and there were sculptures of lions and those were symbols of Babylon's power. Then it says that this lion had eagle's wings. That speaks of the swiftness of Babylon, how quickly that they conquered other nations. Some have suggested that it may refer to Nebuchadnezzar. And you may remember that story in Daniel chapter 4 where God drove him out to the kingdom and made his hair to grow like eagle's feathers and he had fingernails like bird's claws. Check out Daniel chapter 4 to read about that. And verse number 5, there's a second beast and this one is a bear. The kingdom that defeated and replaced Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire. And you may remember that Daniel prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar that Babylon would be consumed by the Medes and the Persians. That fascinating prediction of the takeovers in chapter 5. This is the story of Belshazzar when he was at a drunken feast and he was drinking out of golden cups that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. And as he was sitting there drinking himself into a stupor, out of nowhere there was a hand, just a hand, that began writing on the wall. The hand wrote, Mini, Mini, Tikal, Eupharsin. Belshazzar saw that he was scared out of his wits, so he called the fortune tellers, he called the magicians, he called all the wise men to interpret the writing, but none could. And then at last, Daniel, God's great interpreter, was called, and he read the handwriting on the wall. And as you know, that's where we got that saying, the handwriting on the wall. And it just means that an inevitable bad thing is going to happen. And the handwriting said that the Babylonian kingdom would be taken from Belshazzar and given to the Medes and the Persians. And how inevitable was it? Well, the Bible says it happened on that very day. And so this Persian empire that took over, that's represented by the bear. Then Daniel saw a leopard. And this one's truly remarkable because here we find Daniel forecasting the empire of Alexander the Great. This is the Grecian Empire that had so much influence on the world and even made Greek language the language of the world so that in the time of Jesus and the apostles, the Greek language was the language of the gospel. That's what enabled it to spread around the world so quickly. There was a common language that people spoke. Then there was a fourth empire. A fourth beast rose and It's mightier, this one is mightier than them all. And this beast was so extraordinary because this is a beast with iron teeth. There's no animal that can fight and win against one with iron teeth. And this kingdom is the Roman Empire. And that's the mightiest of them all. So the lineage of the Antichrist is that he has all of the characteristics and power of these four empires combined. He's mightier than them all. And his empire is actually the resurrection of the old Roman Empire in a far more terrible form. And remember, each of these empires that went before, all of these empires are are filled with paganistic heathens. Now in chapter 13 in Revelation, I I think that verse number 3 is an allusion to the Roman Empire. Now if you'll turn back there just a minute, it says in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. The head that's wounded is the old Roman Empire. The wound is healed, and so the empire is resurrected. 
And here's a very interesting thing. As you look at our world today geographically, that there are pieces of the old Roman Empire that are still present in today's world. Europe's countries are pieces of this empire and they'll once again unite and they will come under the one world power of the beast. Kind of interesting that there is a European Union. Many of Europe's countries uh, use the euro, a common currency. One world government is not unimaginable, especially when there are leaders of our country that are willing to give up national sovereignty for the global economy. Sounds very much like the Antichrist. So you have these former world empires that make up the in, uh, kingdom of the Antichrist. His lineage, is, lineage uh, traces back to these ancient empires cited by Daniel in the Old Testament. His kingdom, the Antichrist kingdom, is the greatest of all of these former empires and that combines into one terrifying totalitarian state. So you have a lion, you have a bear, a leopard, and a grotesque animal with iron teeth that represents the great kingdoms of the world that consolidate into the kingdom of the beast. Now returning to Revelation chapter 13, look at verse number 4. And they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worship the beast, saying, Who is likened to the beast, to the Antichrist, who is able to make war with him? Combine all the firepower of all these former kingdoms, all the wisdom, all the tenacity of them, all the strongest features of them, put them all together, and constructed from it is the coming world empire of the Antichrist. So the question goes out, who can stand against him? Who can stand against such a powerful government? He's the greatest, most powerful leader of all time. So you take Nebuchadnezzar, you roll him, and Cyrus, and Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar, and Napoleon, and Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Stalin, Communist China, the Islamic States, roll them all into one. And they won't reach the power of the Antichrist. Now let me return to this thought. Where does he get that power? Remember I preached about the cosmic universal battle that's raged since the Garden of Eden? The dragon, Satan, gives power to the Antichrist. Satan's behind him all of the way. And Satan, through all of these years, has been acting behind the scenes and sometimes along with the scenes, sometimes in front of the scenes, and he's got this big head thinking he's really somebody. But all that Satan is is a creature. And I suppose the most humbling thing that we can say about all of us is that we are, this one word, creatures. We all think that we're somebody, don't we? We all think we're somebody, but we're creatures. We're all created by the one true living God who holds power over all of us. But Satan thinks he has that power, he wants that power, so he gives power to his mini-me, and he invests him with all of his authority. Verse 5 says he speaks great blasphemies. Verse 7 says he makes war with the saints. Verse 8 emphasizes or re-emphasizes the worship given to him from verse number 4. That's typical Satan. Talking big, talking big, always talking big. And big talk is always impressive when it comes from bullies. The Antichrist is the biggest bully of all. He assembles his gangbangers of confederate nations and begins to root out all the opposition. And he does that very subtly at first. He gains everyone's confidence. They believe he's the best thing since sliced bread. Some of you probably recognize 
that reference, what it was like before we had sliced bread. You're too old for me. I don't know anything about that. But whatever this, whatever he is, he, he's very innovative. Innovative. He, he, he tells people he has the best for them in his heart. But he's nothing different than Satan has always been. He's always been against God. And this, we find, is Satan's last attempt to finally be God. He throws everything he has into a false incarnation and into this cosmic battle that's very soon ready to come to its close. And when the Antichrist comes, how much time will he have left? Not long. He begins to build his power at the beginning of the tribulation, but it takes a while to consolidate it and make this big move that he makes to replace all religion with worship of him and, and to have all governmental power vested in him. Revelation says that he has 42 months. And so when all this comes together, he's a one-termer. He, he's a lame duck. And this is the last lame duck to have a less than a four-year term to rule anything. When 42 months are over, he's at the zenith of his power and that's when God cracks the slack in the leash and whips it around his legs and pulls him down. The question is, who does he take with him? Everybody who follows him. God brings vengeance against everyone who worshipped him, everyone who approved as he tortured and killed God's chosen people. Now, Paul's proof that the end times was not yet is that nobody in the world has seen this type of apostasy. No one has yet seen the Antichrist. History proves that he hasn't come. The countdown of 42 months hasn't started. So the big bad Antichrist is still to come. But I want to remind you of this, that the Apostle John said that there are many Antichrists that are in the world now. The forerunners of the one big Antichrist are already in the world. And what are they doing? Well, they attempt the same thing as their hero will do, only they do it on a smaller scale, but they do the same things. They do what he does, and they're men who are in pulpits and women who are in pulpits. They're in government, they're in Congress, they're in the media, and all of these are busy trying to take Christians down. And you needn't think that God's not aware of what's going on. At this hour, God knows every one of them. He records every act of ungodliness that they do. When you have time, just go to that little book of Jude and read there. Jude was on top of this cosmic battle, and he wrote information for God's people that were struggling with persecution. He said, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints. In Jude verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God's judgment will fall on them. Sooner or later, their 42 months will be up. And the end of that is the fires of hell. Everyone who follows him goes the same place that he goes. Well, who will be saved? Who will never suffer defeat? Who will never see destruction? We saw it. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Are you one of them? Or are you one of the others? Will you go up with God or will you go down to hell? And the big, big question here, is it possible for you to know that? Can you know whether your name is in God's book of life? Well, this is a miracle, but it's not a mystery. Yes, you can know. You can know that your name is in God's eternal book by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Christ. 
And that's the only way that you can know. If you don't believe, your name's not there because only the names of those that will believe are recorded in that book. Do you believe? Have you trusted Christ? The Bible urges us not to delay. Nobody knows when the clouds will break open and the glory of God appears. If you hear this message and you don't believe, the Bible says if you don't believe, neither will you believe when the glory of God breaks through. Did you know it says that? Just, just look here at 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, where it says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In those verses are found reasons 3 and 4, and I'll save that for next time. The Thessalonians weren't living in the end times. Reasons 1 through 4 prove it. I can't tell you how long it will be before Christ comes. I can't tell you to set your watch. I can't tell you to mark your calendar. But I can tell you this, that neither you nor I want to be found in rebellion and in unbelief when Jesus Christ comes. Now, I don't want to be left here to find out who is the Antichrist. That's something I just really don't care a whole lot to know. I don't need to know that. I need to know the real Christ. And so I'll... Look for him. I will look for him. I believe in him. And I will be taken up to be with him. And I hope that you will too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word. Thanking you for the great promises that you give. That you are going to return. That you are going to take your people out of the world. Lord, we thank you that though times are tough and we're experiencing terrible times right now. We're not going to experience the wrath that's poured out during the time of tribulation. We're thankful, Lord, that you promise you will take your church out and we won't experience that. Lord, I pray for people here today. I pray for, uh, most likely, as we look over this congregation with our small numbers today, of um, most likely all of our folks here are saved. And we are thankful for that. But should there be one person here who hasn't received Jesus Christ as Savior, who hasn't seen the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, I ask, Lord, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, that your Holy Spirit would come into their life, regenerate them, bring them to salvation, bring them to repentance and faith in our Lord. Well, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and I pray, Lord, as we leave this place just a little bit later, that you'll keep everyone safe. Um, Help us as we leave here to remember again who is in sovereign control. And Lord, may we put all of our hope and confidence in you and nothing that the world has to offer. Be with your people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.